Welcome to Smarty Pants, the podcast of the American Scholar Magazine, sponsored by Phi Beta Kappa. I'm your host, Stephanie Bastak. Pinned to my wall is a green bandana, bearing in Spanish the slogan, sex education so you can decide, contraception so you don't have to get an abortion, and legal abortion so you don't die. It's from the decades-long Argentinian campaign to make abortion legal, safe, and free. In 2020, Argentina finally legalized abortion on demand up to 14 weeks. And just this past February, Colombia did the same, but with a 24-week limit. Here in the United States, however, last week's Supreme Court ruling immediately prohibited abortion in seven states, with 23 more either moving to make it illegal or likely to. This week, I removed that bandana from my wall and tied it around my neck. The feel of it against my throat reminds me of the boot that has been placed on the neck of anyone who is or can become pregnant in Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Michigan, Mississippi, Missouri, Montana, Nebraska, North Carolina, North Dakota, Ohio, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, Virginia, West Virginia, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. If you live in one of these states, I've put existing resources and support systems in the show notes. At the heart of Justice Samuel Alito's opinion in overturning Roe v. Wade is the notion that abortion is not, quote, deeply rooted in this nation's history and tradition. Since Roe is based on the 14th Amendment, Alito contends that we must consider the context in which the 14th Amendment was ratified in 1868. This week, to provide the context that Alito misrepresented, I'm rerunning my interview with Tamara Dean about abortion in the 19th century, when it was common and largely unprohibited. Abortion, then, was safer than childbirth, and until abortion is legal, safe, and free everywhere in the United States, I will be wearing my green bandana. On December 16, 1876, a 35-year-old woman named Nancy Ann Harris died in rural Wisconsin of complications from an abortion. Only one other abortion is mentioned in the leather-bound death records of the county where Harris died and Tamara Dean lives, which she writes about in her essay, Safer Than Childbirth, in the spring 2022 issue of The American Scholar. The more common cause of death, Dean found, was giving birth. At the time, abortion was widely accepted as a means of avoiding the risks of pregnancy and childbirth. Even the Catholic Church didn't oppose ending pregnancy before quickening, usually around the fourth month, because no one believed that human life existed before a woman could feel the fetus move. Tamara Dean joins the podcast to talk about what struck her about this one woman's story and what gets forgotten in the contemporary battle against abortion. Thanks so much for chatting with me, Tamara. Thanks for having me, Stephanie. So tell us how you first encountered Nancy Ann Harris and why you wanted to write about this woman. 
It was one of those occurrences out of the blue. I had known that in the cemetery on my rural Wisconsin property, the neighbors said there were the graves of Civil War soldiers, but the tombstones had been washed downstream in a huge flood in 1978. And this was sort of apocryphal. I never knew if it was true, and I'd heard it over the years. So finally, I went to the uh, County Historical Society and looked into the cemetery records. Um, and what I found is there were only a handful of people buried in that cemetery, that little plot on our property. And there were no men, there were no Civil War soldiers, but there were a few women um, listed. One, I said her name aloud, Nancy Ann Harris, while I was looking at the record of the people in the cemetery that the assistant curator at the County Historical Society had handed me. I said, Nancy Ann Harris, because that name wasn't familiar to me. And a woman doing genealogy who was sitting next to me at one of the tables said, oh, that's my husband's great, great, great aunt. And I said, how do you know that? And then our conversation went on and, and she proceeded to tell me that Nancy had died of an abortion and that she had had many. And I said, how did you know that? Um, so it was this moment of just surprise after surprise that led me into deeper research and um, more revelations. So how did you find out what exactly happened to Nancy? Actually, somebody had handwritten a copy of her death record um, on an index card at the County Historical Society, but the actual record is filed at the Register of Deeds office in the county courthouse, which is across town. So I went to see for myself um, what exactly it said, because the writing on this index card, it just seemed so un records like unprofessional it really did say she had died of an abortion and this might have been her 10th i was really struck by the line you were really struck by in your essay in the opening where another woman who's not related to nancy and harris says that that nancy must have been something else right she was i don't know when she walked into the historical society but she heard us talking about nancy and harris um, she heard the woman doing genealogy beside me say she had died of an abortion and that she'd had several. Um, so this other woman who had just walked in, I think, um, said that Nancy must have been something else. And I wasn't sure how she meant it. And I didn't know how to take it. She did sound a little judgmental, maybe. Uh, but I know that phrase can be used to mean a few different things. I just wish that I had had the presence of mind or the knowledge in that moment to offer some kind of retort. Um, and what I found in my research would have supplied me with plenty um, to respond with. So let's start with a death record, since that's where your research begins. You quote Nancy's in full. Disease caused by abortion at three months. This was perhaps the 10th abortion, all except this followed by smart hemorrhage. You say that Nancy's is the longest in there, which is striking in and of itself. And 10 is also a striking number not because it was high, but as we'll talk about later, because it was pretty common for women to have more than one. Mm -hmm. So that's Nancy. But there were also so many other dead women in there, and not dead women who are 70, women who are 19, 26, 40, 47. What are these women dying from? Right. Um, 
So first of all, I was amazed by the footnote on Nancy Ann Harris's death record too. It was the longest description of a death in any of the volumes that I saw. And it went up the page. It hadn't been enough um, to just stay within the lines, but they made an effort, the county clerk, um, to write in the margins on the side vertically to make sure they got the information down that they must have received from the, uh, the doctor who attended her death or just afterward. Um, but yeah, on every page, there were women dying of puerperal peritonitis, which was what Nancy was listed as dying of, or puerperal septicemia, or plain childbirth, they would say, giving birth to a child, um, any kind of inflammation or eclampsia, things that would be, for the most part, treatable today, but were deadly then. So what did childbirth look like, which you say many women considered, quote, pathological and frightening? I guess the death record kind of speaks for itself on that count. It does. And it makes you think about how many women as girls, even, you know, at a young age, had probably seen women either dying of childbirth or they knew of it. It could have been their aunt or their sister or their mother. Um, this would have been a very familiar, very close and terrifying experience for a lot of girls and young women. So when they married, when they started having families, um, they had to know how to control their reproductive capacity. I mean, for many reasons, it was health. It was also economics. Um, it was a management of resources of time and energy, too. So what did these abortions look like? They're probably very different from the kinds of abortions people have available today, right? Yeah, there were some medical abortions at the time, which were obviously very different than what um, that procedure looks like today. But in a lot of cases, women took it upon themselves to um, conduct the abortion. And they would, in a rural situation in particular, it's more likely that women depended on herbs. They might have had a garden of herbs that could be abortifacients. They might have relied on a, an older woman who was more experienced, a midwife, who had the knowledge of what herbs and tinctures to use. Even in rural Wisconsin, where Nancy lived, they might have sent away for pills or tinctures that they saw advertised in magazines. Um, so it was not without risks, but I think that because women were educating themselves and talking with each other very openly about abortion, they understood the risks and they also knew how to mitigate them. Um, and they were taking responsibility for their health. How much of this is in the public record? People probably didn't go around saying, oh, I had an abortion last Tuesday. What were you up to last week? Or, you know, talk about it after church. So how do we know how many women spoke of these things or even how many abortions were happening in rural Wisconsin or elsewhere? Yeah, the books that I read um, as background for this piece relied on things like women's diaries or letters to friends or companions, their, their spouses or partners at the time to get a sense for how openly they talked about it. They also cited articles that had doctors opposed to abortion talking about how freely women of all races and classes talked about it. But um, we don't know how many abortions were successfully um, undertaken. 
you know, there are no records for women who have abortions unless, basically, unless they died of one um, until really the uh, 20th century. I rather like the euphemisms that women were using for abortion at this time because it it almost normalized it somehow, made it seem like your menstrual cycle or something that happened on the regular, like pregnancy was just a thing that happened to you and didn't have to be permanent. Removing a blockage, restoring the menzies, being put straight, opened up, fixed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they really did regard a regular menstrual period as the healthy norm and a pregnancy as the aberration. Um, they also said about, you know, being pregnant or missing their cycle, they were taking the cold. So it was regarded as, you know, common as um, a cold would be to us today. Um, you know, they didn't have birth control like we do. So this was another means of birth control. And there wasn't the stigma because as you said in your introduction, abortion wasn't considered as an act of, you know, ending a human life because that human life didn't exist until quickening, which is about four months into a pregnancy. When did things change, though? Because now we have challenges to the legality of abortion all the time. And there is, of course, now one major threat from Mississippi percolating in the Supreme Court, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. When did abortion come to be seen as a bad thing? Mm-hmm. In the mid-1850s, men who were part of the AMA, the American Medical Association, um, and one in particular, Horatio Storer, became obsessed with this idea that um, the nation's birth rate had really dropped and dropped by such an amount that couldn't be attributed to barrenness or celibacy um, or even miscarriage. It had to, they felt, have been a result of abortions. And it's true that more women were becoming educated and talking about abortion and learning how. So abortion probably did um, contribute to that rapidly decreasing birth rate. And their fear, the AMA regular doctors, they would call themselves, um, was that the nation would be overrun by immigrants and Catholics and that their white Protestant um, ideal would be, you know, eliminated. And this was at a time when more areas of this country were being opened up for European American settlement um, and the fears about immigrants and the fears about lower classes of people um, were very real. So they had to find a way, they thought, to convince white Protestant middle-class women to step up their procreation so that they would still have power in this new world. And what they did was, first, Horatio Storr wrote a pamphlet or a short book um, for women about why they should you know, not have abortion. Um, and then they tried through legal means to make abortion punishable by fines and imprisonment. And the first laws that affected abortion were really more like poison control measures, because it's true that some of these tinctures and pills that a woman could send away for um, were not entirely um, safe. So poison control was one side of it, and they would punish the providers of these things, but the women who took them still wouldn't be punished. And then along came state measures to 
make abortion at any stage punishable by fines and imprisonment. In Wisconsin, that happened in 1859. But by 1880, all states in the U.S. had some kind of um, abortion law on the books. It's really tragic, although I guess kind of predictable that doctors would use, you know, the latent racism and xenophobia of white women to drive them to do something that's bad for them too. It's like awfully familiar. Exactly. It's so familiar. The anti-abortion movement definitely came out of white supremacy and the fears by doctors and politicians. And by the way, a lot of doctors did serve in their state legislatures. They had power in more than one way. They could decide whether they wanted to give someone an abortion upon request. Um, and they could also create laws to punish abortion providers or the women who sought them. So it was a fear of losing power um, by the white male politicians and doctors, a fear that um, the country would be a majority non-white, really. And they included Italians, Mexicans, and other people in their fears. Um, and it didn't entirely work. They might have stopped some people from having abortions, but women sort of ignored the laws for a while, and they weren't really punished. Um, in fact, in Wisconsin, the bill, which, by the way, nobody had asked for, no one in the legislature, not the churches or not the public, but he pushed it through, William Brisbane, um, said, yeah, it might not be uh, enforced for a while, but it'll, it'll get people's attention. Um, so women didn't necessarily adhere to it, and yet it had implications for the future. So it was making it illegal in the beginning, and that effort has not really let up since that time. It's shocking to think that before the 1850s, people didn't really debate abortion before quickening. It just wasn't an issue, and um, people saw it as necessary. Mm. I mean, it, it kind of mirrors the situation today, too, where like a small minority is pushing for something that the majority of Americans for quite a long time has not opposed. It is, and it's heartbreaking and wearying to see how forceful this minority can be and how effective they are at passing laws that ultimately end up imperiling women's health. Today, that might mean driving across a huge state to get to a clinic in another state. But meanwhile, what do you do about the children you have at home, childcare, and what do you do about the job that doesn't really give you any time off? It's disheartening how little the politicians are thinking of women's health in the larger sense. What surprised me too is how quickly that change happened, because Nancy dies in 1876. And then you discovered in the record this young woman, who you speculate was her niece, Florence Palmer, who dies in 1892, not even 20 years after Nancy, of the same thing, puerperal peritonitis. But she dies much younger, at 26. Right. Um, by that time, 1892, the Comstock laws had taken effect. So information about abortion was not widely available as it was in the 1850s. Um, those pills and tinctures wouldn't have been advertised in magazines that Florence might have picked up 
in the nearby town or had sent to her home. And also the women didn't speak of it as openly because there was a stigma attached to it now by 1892. In addition, some of the elders who might have been midwives or had, you know, successfully accomplished their own abortions many years ago had passed on. So there just weren't the resources in 1892 for Florence that there had been in 1876 for Nancy. Um, and Florence already had five kids, you know, in her 20s. So it's not certain whether she had an abortion or whether she died as a result of, you know, post-childbirth by that puerperal peritonitis, but it's quite possible. I see some parallels here between, you know, social media and our ability to talk about things today to the sort of not the whisper network, but the network of women, you know, sharing this knowledge before it became illegal to do so. Right. And to be very open about it. And I think that Cecily Strong sketch on Saturday Night Live earlier this year was um, just such a great comment on how women do talk about abortion, but it takes an icebreaker and then they really talk about it. And it's such a common experience, but it is taboo to talk about it um, in general conversation. Mm. Yeah. And I think so few people really know how many of their friends have had an abortion. Nearly one in four women will have had an abortion by the time they're 45. Odds are if you are above the age of 18, you know at least one person who's had an abortion. It's pretty common. And yet campaigns like Shout Your Abortion can seem kind of radical to some people because we don't talk about it. Right. There was a campaign called I'm Not Sorry, and you could wear a T-shirt saying I'm not sorry to express that, you know, you made this decision and you don't regret it. And I don't think that really had legs either. I don't think it took off. What do you hope that putting this essay out in the world does for the conversation about abortion? You know, why is it important to look to history when we are talking about contemporary medical abortion today? Right. Abortion is safer than it ever has been. And it seems to me that we can take a lesson from women of the mid 1800s in their drive to educate themselves and to do what's necessary for their own health. And one thing about the essay that intrigued me as a writer was the speculation angle. Because we can't know what Nancy Ann Harris's life was like, much less the circumstances around her abortions or her death, um, I think it's very important to look into the environment and quotes or accounts um, from other people around the time to imagine ourselves into the lives of these women who might have seen that they had no other choice. And I think that's still true today. So if we don't have a written record, if we don't have certainty around somebody else's experience, can we at least find clues and look deeper and imagine our way into their lives? You know, this is my great hope for literature in general, but it's what I hope we do in this time, not only for women facing a choice, but for everyone whose lives we don't fully understand. We have links in the show notes to Tamara Dean's essay, Safer Than Childbirth, from the spring 2022 issue of The American Scholar. 
If you're curious about the other long-term effects of the Comstock laws and ways that women were persecuted by the law, check out an interview I did with Scott Stern a couple years ago about how thousands of single women were locked up in the beginning of the 20th century for nothing more than being suspected of being promiscuous. We'll be back next week. Till then, take care and stay sharp.